right. Check, check. All right. Welcome, everybody. If we can make our way back to our seats, we're going to get rolling into the next part of our time of worship. We've been worshiping through song, through prayer, uh, through greeting one another. Also, thanks for uh, relocating with us over to our storage facility. We are in a, a table and chair warehouse today, so thanks for, thanks for joining us there. Church, church can happen anywhere. All right, as we get rolling uh, into this part of our worship service, the sermon part um, of worship, we're going to be in John chapter 17, verses uh, 6 through 9. John 17, 6 through 9. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up there. That's where we're going to be. Um, a little announcement for you. Um, this is something that we haven't shared publicly yet. It's not in your bulletin, so you're going to be privileged to new information. Uh, in a few weeks, September 17th, uh, we are going to be starting uh, a high school youth group. Um, so the high school and junior highs have been together over the last few years, and as you can imagine, high schoolers are very different than junior highs. And so we're thankful that they had something over the last few years, but Livy and I, God put it on our hearts to say, what if we stepped back from home group leading this year and gave our time and attention, rather, to doing high school discipleship? It's going to look a little bit different, and, um, but we're really excited about it. So if you're a parent of a high schooler or a high schooler, you'll be hearing more from us. We're going to be doing less from the front announcing it, because we know who you are anyway. Uh, but yeah, we'll, you'll be hearing a lot more about that. It's going to be at our house on every Sunday night and uh, starting September 17th. So stick that in your mind. That's where we're going. All right, thanks. All right, and we are going to move towards the sermon, but first let's pause and, and, and pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we come before you tonight, uh, this morning, putting aside the things that are distracting us, putting aside plans for this afternoon, uh, arguments with our spouse or kids this morning, anything else that might be distracting us, setting those things aside so that we can turn our attention to you, Lord, um, to the God of the universe. Uh, you are um, what many theologians would call transcendent. You transcend this world. You are beyond anything that we can conceive of. Words can't express who you are, and the length of our Bibles kind of shows us how hard it is to express how glorious and good you are, to express the amazing story uh, that you have written and the story that we're a part of. And so, Lord, as we continue through this series on, on John 17 today, Lord, I pray that you'd give us a, a renewed vision of your greatness uh, and a renewed appreciation for your love for us. A love we don't deserve, but a love you gave anyway. We praise you, Father. So use this time to your glory. Lead us to worship through this, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Jesus is in the upper room. Uh, he has been there for a couple chapters now. Uh, this is the Last Supper and his final time of teaching with his disciples. In chapters 14 through 16, he's telling them all about him leaving, the Spirit coming. He's telling them all about the fact of or what it's going to look like to live in this world as his followers and the hope that they have as his followers in the next world. So chapter six, 14 through 16 is all Jesus speaking to his disciples, but starting in chapter 17, Jesus turns from his disciples to speak to God. In other words, John chapter 17 is a prayer. It's a prayer that we often call the high priestly prayer because it's there that God the Son speaks with God the Father. 
And so we've been there for the last two weeks. And verses one through five of the prayer, what we've seen is that Jesus has come to finish the mission that God sent him to do. He's talking to the Father about their shared mission. He's saying, Father, you sent me with a job to do. Let's finish this thing. Bring me to the cross that I might glorify you by giving them life, and then bring me home. That's been the message of the first five verses that we've seen over the last few weeks. But today, in John chapter 17, verses 6 through 9, Jesus starts talking to his Father about us. Not about his shared mission, but about his people. Now, since the beginning of time, people have knit themselves into groups. They've partitioned themselves off, whether that's families or uh, by along ethnic groups, tribal lines, religious lines. It's something that we all do naturally, and it's something that we still do today. Whether we break ourselves up by countries, by classes, or by cliques, we have a tendency to break ourselves up into groups. And for a group to be a group, you kind of have to know who's in the group and who's not in the group. That's what makes a group a group. Some people are in, and some people are not in. Also, uh, to be a part of a group, there's often a pretty clear process to join that group, a way to get in. So, for instance, if you're a part of a family group, you're either born into it or adopted into it or married into it. Those are the ways that you join that group. A country, there's a process of citizenship for a team. There's tryouts. For a school, there's application. For a class, there's registration. For all kinds of groups, from fraternities to the Freemasons, there's initiations. And some groups are exclusive. Some groups you can't just sign up for. You have to be nominated for, uh, invited, or elected into. So like Congress. You can't just walk up to the Capitol building and sign up for Congress. That's a good thing. Other groups are open. It really is just so simple as signing on the dotted line, maybe paying a little bit of money, and you're in. Sam's Club is that one. I'm a part of a—well, I was a part of a group growing up uh, called the Order of the Arrow. Has anybody heard of the Order of the Arrow? We've got one, two. Awesome. Uh, it's, a, it's a brotherhood of Boy Scouts. Um, and when I was in the Scouts, I was in junior high, and there was the chance to become a part of this brotherhood, this group. All I knew is that you got to wear a really cool sash with an arrow on it. Um, and to be a part of the group, what I had to do was I had to go to this retreat. I had to sleep— outside alone without a tent. Um, and I was really nervous about this. And, uh, but this was the initiation. This is what you had to do to make it into the Order of the Arrow. Uh, but it turns out all they had us do was go out to a field and like, lay on the ground 10 feet apart and say, yeah, you're alone in the woods. You're fine. And we were in. That's all it took. But there was this process of initiation. We had to go through this process and we'd be in the group, in the brotherhood. And so last week, we overheard Jesus pray something really interesting, and it's something that we just passed over pretty quick. This is what Jesus said in 17 verse 2. I don't, I don't have it up here. He said that he came to give eternal life to all whom you have given me. What does that mean? Jesus came to give eternal life to all whom the Father had given him. Who exactly is that? Who exactly are those people that the Father has given to Jesus? Who exactly forms that group? And I want to know who forms that group because if those are the people that Jesus is going to give eternal life to, frankly, it's a group I'd like to be a part of. 
whether or not you are in that group, whether or not you are part of the people that God the Father has given to God the Son is, Son is literally a matter of eternal life and eternal death. And so it's not something we just want to pass over. It's something we should consider. We skipped this last week. We're going to be focusing on it this week because when we come to John chapter 17, verses 6 through 9, Jesus speaks to the Father about this group. And he's revealing to us something, that this is a group that we cannot join on our own. The Father does something, the Son does something, and we do something. We see all three of those things in this passage. The Father does something, the Son does something, and we do something. And as we read the passage here in a moment, be looking for that. What do we do? What does Jesus do? What does the Father do? And I just want to say this before we go into it. We are entering into the realm of mystery. We're entering into things that our brains cannot draw out with a mental map. This is something that Christians struggle over for good reason. And so we're going to be looking at this today. I might say things you disagree with. I might say things you agree with. But at the end of the day, here's what we know. Jesus is king. And by faith, you're his. And so let's pray, and we'll dive into John 17, 6 through 9. Heavenly Father, open our eyes to see what's here. Open our ears to hear what you have. Soften and humble our hearts to receive what you say. And I do pray, Lord, that you would give us the mental capacity to just wrestle with mystery. And that that mystery wouldn't lead us just to shrug and walk away, but it would lead us to delight in the fact that even if we don't understand something you do, and yet that's another reason to say, wow, you're incredible. So, we come to you for worship today. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so listen close. What does God do? What does Jesus do? And what do we do? Fair warning, it's all mashed up. So pay attention to what the God does, what the Father does, what Jesus does, what we do. Verse 6. Jesus prays, I have manifested your name to the people whom you have given me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me. And they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. For they are yours. What does God do? What does Jesus do? What do we do? Because this passage has all three. Let's start with Jesus. That's a good place to start. What do we see Jesus doing in this, in this passage? He, what does he do to make a people? You know, very often when we talk about the ministry of Jesus, the work of Jesus, we break down his work into three categories. We might say his three ministries or his three offices. He is a prophet, he is a priest, and he is a king. Have you ever heard Jesus referred to like that? Prophet, priest, and king? When we talk about Jesus being a king, what we're saying is that he establishes and rules over his kingdom. That's his, his kingly work. When we talk about Jesus being a priest, we're talking about the fact that he, Jesus, stands between us and God. And there in between us and God, he is making the once-for-all sacrifice for sin, restoring us to God and speaking to God on our behalf. 
So we might think of us down here, God up here, and Jesus lifting us up to the Father. That's his priestly role, just like the priests did in the Old Testament. But the third one is his prophetic role. He's also a prophet. And what does a prophet do? A prophet stands between, sorry, stands between God and man. He came, after all, speaking God's word to us. That's what he did. We'll see that in a minute. He is the image of the invisible God. He came revealing God to us. So if a prophet is down here lifting us up to God, or a priest is down here lifting us up to God, a prophet is helping bring God down to us. Jesus is a prophet, a king, a priest, and a prophet. And when we look at these four verses and we see what Jesus does, we see him doing his prophetic work. He's being a prophet here. That's one of the roles we actually think about least when we talk about Jesus. That Jesus stands between the Father and us, acting as something like a divine funnel, taking everything that God is and funneling it down to us, translating it to us, being an ambassador from heaven to earth for us. We see it in verse 6. I have manifested your name. When he says your name, he's not talking about what God's called. He's talking about who God is. He's displaying who God is to us. Displaying for mankind the God in whom is life, right? And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So that's why he's manifesting God, giving us life. Verse 8, For I have given them the words that you gave me, not just life, but the words like a prophet, he speaks God's words. John 7, 16 says this, that my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. Peter recognized this. What did he say? Just a couple chapters, or a chapter before that, that you have the words of eternal life, Jesus. He's a prophet, revealing God to man, speaking God's words to man. That's what we see Jesus doing in these first four verses, standing between us and God, showing and telling us the Father, manifesting and proclaiming in order that we might have life. Now, we're going to move on from that because we talk quite a bit about Jesus, <laughs> and we have been talking quite a bit about Jesus in this series, but we're going to be focusing more on the Father and us. That is the focus that we need to—that's the thing we need to focus on today. And so that's what Jesus does. What does God do? Well, let's read the first and the last verses here. Verses 6 and 9. He says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. Verse 9. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. What do you do with that? <laughs> and if you're wrestling, I, frankly, I'm, I'm glad you're wrestling with that, because that doesn't maybe click with everything that we say, everything that we preach, everything that we believe. Because it seems here from this passage that there is a clearly defined group of people whom the Father has given to the Son, and that clearly defined group of people does not include everyone. That's what that passage is seeming to say. And frankly, this isn't the first time in the book of John that we see this. John 6, 37, listen close, it says this, All that the Father gives me will come to me. 
John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. We also see it in other places in the Bible. Ephesians chapter 1 says that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. And even when we see the church begin to grow, Paul and Barnabas, they're traveling through uh, Turkey at the time, Asia Minor, and they're coming through a town called Antioch in Pisidia. They're preaching the gospel. And then we read in Acts 13, 48, And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. What do you do with that? Because this passage and others, they seem to be telling us that God's perfect, sovereign power extends not only over the wind and the weather, not only over politics and and relationships, but his perfect, sovereign power extends over the salvation of men. That God forms for himself a people according to his will. What do you do with that? Because frankly... (laughs) There's not a lot of consensus about it. (laughs) A lot of people are in a lot of different places about that question. How does that all work together? This is that same age-old question that you might have heard people ask before. Does God choose us, or do we choose God? Does he draw the lines around his church, or do we voluntarily enter into it? When we talk about sovereignty, what we're talking about, after all, is that God reigns over everything uh, as an all-powerful and perfectly good king. He controls everything and causes them to work according to his good will. So how can everything be according to his will and ours? Did God choose us or do we choose God? There's three good reasons actually why we should struggle with that. Good reasons, I'm saying. Not bad reasons. Good reasons why you should struggle with that. It comes down to our experiences, our emotions, and our study. So the first one are our experiences. I don't know about you, but I can speak for myself. I did not feel forced to come to Jesus. I considered the evidence. I prayed about it. I thought about it. I wrestled with it until the day I gave my life to him. It wasn't something that I felt forced into. I feel like I chose him. Also emotions. It makes sense that people, we we don't like sounding like mindless puppets. (laughs) We know we're not mindless puppets. We have minds. We make decisions. We don't like the idea that this might be saying that we are just pre-programmed robots doing exactly what God forces us to do. There's a good reason to have an emotional objection to what this sounds like. And then finally, and I think most importantly, there's a reason in Scripture When we look at the rest of the Bible, there are a lot of texts that seem to say the opposite. And you're in luck, because today we're studying one of them. I mean, this passage, it says pretty clearly, I think, that there's a clearly defined group of people that God has chosen to be his, and it also seems to say the exact opposite. So let's jump back into this passage and wrestle with that for a minute. John uh, John 17, verses 7 and 8, that's where we're going to be looking. 
Jesus manifests, God gives, what does man do? Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. And I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Now, wait a second. <laughs> because if I was just to read verses 6 and 9, I think I would say pretty confidently, God chooses us. But when I read verses 7 and 8 right here, it seems pretty clear. We choose God. And so how do those two things fit together? How is it possible that God could choose us and we could also choose him? Jesus is manifesting and speaking, but it says clearly here, man received God's word and man believed in Jesus. And just like with the other idea, the same is true here. This is not the first time. It's far from the first time in the book of John that this idea is proclaimed as well. Famously, John 3, 16, that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. But there's many more. John 5, 24, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Pretty clear. John 7, 38, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. John 20, 31, talking about this book, it says that these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus Christ is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So which is it? Did God choose us or did we choose God? We could say it also maybe like this. Whose will is stronger? Whose will wins here? Is it God's will? Or is it our will? Is it God's sovereignty or man's free will? I'll give you the answer. This is the first time in history somebody's got an answer. You ready? Here it goes. According to this text, here's the answer. God chose a people for himself. He gave them Jesus so that Jesus could save them. This text says, yes, God chooses us. And this passage tells us that man has to hear and respond to this message of good news. The answer is yes. This passage says that we choose God. Because the hard thing is, when we read the Bible, we have to read the Bible with both eyes open. And very often when we read the Bible, we tend to read the Bible with one eye open. Sometimes, at least in passages like this. We may say that we, we choose God and God doesn't choose us, but that's to close one eye to all the teachings of Scripture. Or we might say that God chooses us and we don't choose him, but that's to close the other eye. In fact, we of all people, I would say, the followers of Jesus Christ should be the most practiced in seeing God's truth with both eyes open. Because let me just ask you a little question. Is God three or is he one? Yes. 100%. Both ways. Was Jesus God or was Jesus man? Yeah, absolutely. That's who he was and is. Is the kingdom already or is it not yet? Yeah, yep, that's right. And what about us? Are we holy or are we in process? Yes. 
Absolutely. We have 100%. We have so much practice as Christians being able to sit in the tension of two truths. We do it all the time. The foundations of our faith are built on the tension between these two truths. These things that in our mind we can't explain. They feel like paradoxes, but we say confidently, Lord, I don't understand fully. It's a mystery to me, and yet I trust that you are sovereign, and you are good, and you are holy. We, of all people, should be the most comfortable in those places. And so when we come to passages like this that seems like God chose us very clearly, and seems to say that God cho- and that, that we chose him very clearly, we, of all people, should be most comfortable saying, all right, I don't know. <laughs> I can't explain it. I can't draw it on a sheet of paper. But you're good. And I know that. And so here's something that J.I. Packer says about this. I'm very helped by him with all of this. But he, what he says is that what the Bible does is to assert both truths side by side in the strongest and most ambitious unambiguous terms as two ultimate facts. This, therefore, is the position we must take in our thinking. Both true. This is what Joel Beakey says. He says that when Charles Spurgeon was asked how these two grand biblical doctrines, God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, could be reconciled, he responded, and I love this, I did not know that friends needed reconciliation. (laughs) He went on to compare these two doctrines as rails, picture this, as rails of a track upon which Christianity runs. Just as the rails of a train, which run parallel to each other, appear to to merge in the distance, so the doctrine of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, which seems separate to each other in this life, will merge in eternity. Our task is not to force the merging in this life but to keep them in balance and to live accordingly. Isn't that helpful? Isn't that freeing? It's not saying it doesn't matter. It's not saying, ah, let's let the theologians deal with that. It's not saying that we should just put it aside and pick a side or anything like that. What it's saying is that we should draw upon and find hope in and worship because of the beauty of both of those truths. And so he ends by saying this, our task is not to force the merging in this life, but to keep them in balance and to live accordingly. Then my question is, what does it look like to keep them in balance and to live accordingly? How does that actually shape our lives, to have free will and God's sovereignty both as biblical truths to stand upon? Well, we could talk about that in all areas of life. We could talk about that in our Christian growth or the living as the church. We could talk about that many different ways. Let's just talk about that in two ways. In our salvation, and in our mission. Because according to our salvation, we know God gave us free will. We must seek God. We must seek God and believe in Him. We must put our faith in Him. And it's normal to wrestle with doubt. It's right for us to count the cost. It's right for us to have questions and to seek answers. And it is right and indeed necessary for us to then say, Jesus, I believe your word. I believe that you came from God 
So wash away my sins. Make me new. Give me life. That is biblical. That is right. That's what God calls all of us to. Because God is sovereign, there's another train track there. Because he is sovereign, we can rest in this. Knowing that he who called us didn't change his mind. Knowing that our story from beginning to the end is the result of God's grace. We can rejoice in the fact that the hound of heaven sniffed you out and brought you home. So when it comes to our salvation, we choose God. So seek him. Believe. If you're somebody here today who has not yet come to faith, consider, ask questions, talk about that. Don't stop that journey until you come to a conclusion. But also, trust that the ultimate outcome of your soul does not rest in your temporary hands alone. Your salvation is in the hands of somebody who is far wiser, far more powerful than you, and somebody who loves you more than you could ever know. Both are true in our salvation. Both are true also in our mission, in our evangelism. Because God gave us free will, we have to share in Jesus' work of reconciliation. This is 2 Corinthians 5.17. We read, Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and, encounter, sorry, and, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Let me just boil that down. We have to go. <laughs> we have to tell. We have to join in the work of Christ. That's the work he gave us to do. We have to speak the words of eternal life. We have to help people who are wrestling with doubt. We have to seek answers with them until they choose to believe. And yes, I said choose to believe. But because God is sovereign, at the same time, here's the other rail. We can rest. We can rest leaving the outcome in the hands of God. That I don't have to save a soul. I can't soften hearts. I can't revive the dead. Neither can you. Because God is sovereign in, his mission, in our mission, in our evangelism, it means that the weight, <laughs> the weight of the salvation or damnation of people does not land on our shoulders. It rests heavy on our hearts, but it does not weigh on our shoulders. And so we go. We tell, we show, we love, and we leave the result in the hands of God. And because God is sovereign, finally, we must pray that if you think for a minute <laughs> that you can convince someone into the kingdom, you're dead wrong. <laughs> this is a work that we do hand in hand with the God of the universe. The one who actually has the power to reach through our skin and cut open our souls. I mean, we pray all the time that God would soften this person's heart, open them, help them understand the gospel. We pray these things because we believe deep down that God can reach under our shirt and do a heart surgery in us. So pray for it. We can't do this mission alone. Ask him for his help. He wants us to, and I promises, he promises that he will do it. God is sovereign. Man is responsible. God chooses us. 
We choose God. And though not everybody's going to agree on how these two things fit together, here's where we can agree with absolute certainty. And here's what matters most. That the Father sent his Son to save sinners. That the Son laid down his life in our place. And that if you have believed in him, you are reconciled to God. Hope in that message, no matter how it works. Proclaim that message, no matter how it works. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the fact that when we look in your word, we see mystery. We see things that uh, extend beyond our ability to comprehend. We thank you for that, Lord, because what we know is that we serve a God who is too big for us to comprehend. Like I said before, a God who is transcendent, unable to wrap our minds around. In fact, God, if we could fully and perfectly understand you, then you wouldn't be all-powerful. You would not be transcendent. In other words, you would not be very worthy of worship if you were so small that we could wrap our minds around. And so, Father, as we think about these things, as we feel our minds wrestle in the paradox here, may that lead us to worship, first of all. May that lead us to fully embrace your sovereignty and your free, uh, the free will that you've given to us. To live in that balance, God. Hope and responsibility at the same time. As your people, Lord, help us live in that balance. And may you be glorified, God, as we, as we find our hope there. We praise you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.